Time to get that multitask and 100 billion neuron connecting priority arranging segment of your wonderfully constructed brain to contemplate this. Ever wonder how many handshakes take place in a day? How many hugs happen? How many one-to-one face-to-face conversations go on? What about glances, kisses, laughs, and prayers? Ways we connect. And you, right there, right now. How are you connected to the person next to you? The people around you? Your friends, your enemies, the strange dude at the mall? How about the movies you watch, the books you read, the messages all around you? And how do you connect differently than people connected in the past? So many thoughts, ideas, blogs, texts, posts, and tweets these days. Everybody wants to connect to someone or something. And the world wide web of intersection and connection has changed everything. Get this. One out of eight couples married in the U.S. in 2008 met through social media. Unfortunately, half will be divorced in five years, connected and disconnected. There are over 500 million active Facebook users who spend over 700 billion minutes per month clicking, posting, uploading, and downloading. An average user is connected to 80 community pages, groups, and events, and each person creates 90 pieces of content each month. Folks got a lot to share, a lot to say. So much that the average user spends 55 minutes per day, 6.5 hours per week, or about 1.3 full days per month on Facebook. And that's just people sitting around home because more than 200 million are on Facebook through mobile phones nowadays because long lost are the days of landline phones, busy tones, and yeah, Davy Jones. And speaking of cell phones, in 2004, 674 million were sold, which is 105 million less than the 779 million sold in 2005, which is nothing compared to the almost 4 billion sold in the last three years. Some people in the world who don't have toilets or houses have cell phones. People really want to connect. But wait, there's more. One trillion text messages were sent in 2008, 1.5 trillion in 2009, and then it went up to 6.1 trillion just recently. That's a thousand texts per person for every person on the planet. That's a lot of connecting. Yet this hasn't even scratched the surface. There's over 50 million tweets per day, over 60 million LinkedIn people, and 43 million people still visit MySpace per month. Then there's however many millions on Ning, Tag, Meetup, Bebo, My Yearbook, and Friendster looking at everything from posts to pics to video. Speaking of which, it would take you over 27 years without sleeping to watch all the videos uploaded on YouTube just this week. Everybody wants to connect. Connect with a friend, connect with family, connect to the past, connect to the future, connect to God. Connect with God. The one who created connections, voices, images, ears, eyes, smiles, kisses, glances, faces, friends, music, color, stars, electricity, light, laughter, and love, just to name a few. Connect with him? And what does that mean? Well, you connect the dots. Praise the Lord. Do you know we're very connected in the world today? It seems the more connected we are globally, the more disconnected we are internally. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this moment that we could really engage. We ask for your help to sometimes just get a point across. (laughs) Your thoughts handle this moment, God. We give it to you in Jesus' name. Want to start a new theme entitled, We're All Connected. And today I want to engage in a topic in this theme saying, We're all God's people. We are all God's people. When we look around us in the world today, we sometimes forget that we all came from the same source. 
We can think highly of ourselves, and that's permissible if it's seen through the lens of the one who created us. James admonished us not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought. Because there is a thin line between idolatry and worshiping of God who created us in his name. Amen. Welcome. Welcome again. Welcome, Sister Udalyn. Good to see you today, my friend, and all the rest of you who are here and watching online. Turn in your Bibles with me. We're going to read the creation story in Genesis 2, 18 to 25. One of the creation story. I'm reading today from the NLT. You can follow along in whatever translation you have. The passage says, Then the Lord God said, It's not good for a man to be alone. I will make a helper who is just right for him. So the Lord formed from the ground all the wild animals and all the birds of the sky. He brought them to the man to see if he would call them, what he would call them. And the man chose a name for each one. What a task. He gave names to all the livestock, all the birds of the sky, and all the wild animals. But still, there was no helper just right for him. So, the Lord God took out of the man's ribs and closed up the opening. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib and he brought her to the man. At last, he thought, the man exclaimed, this one, not like the ox and the donkey and the dog and the cat and the pig and the everything else, but this one. This one is actually bone of my bone. Flesh of my flesh, she will be called woman because she was taken from man. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife and the two are united into one. Now the man and his wife were both naked they felt no shame. Yes, we are all connected in an indelible cord of love by our Heavenly Father. 
And the synergy of this unity is demonstrated by our creator when he made the first humans. Adam, our first father was lovingly shaped by the hand of God, designed and equipped with tributaries of nerves, blood vessels, bones, muscles, sinews, and organs. And then he stooped down and gave his own breath to Adam, which confirms that he created him in his own likeness. And Adam became a living soul. Someone asked me last week, what makes something living life? What, what makes something a life? Form. What is life? And I said to the person, the breath of God. Because had God stopped at just forming Adam from the earth, he would have just been a piece of art. But God went further to bring him alive by giving him breath. And every creature, every living thing on this earth that is alive, including the plants and the trees, they all breathe. They all breathe God. And so, in a way, we are all connected by that one breath. The pneuma. The breath of God. That carouses through our lungs and through our tissues through our cells that make us alive. That is something to celebrate. Because it's a great miracle creation. It is no big bang chaos and all of a sudden there is order. God did it. Created humankind. The second human was not formed In the same way, the first human was designed. Quite interesting, don't you think? Because God could have done the same thing over. He did it with all the animals. He did it with Adam. He could have just stooped down and tried some else to see which one was really suitable. But the word of God tells us that he did something unique. He decided to connect the man with the woman. Now we don't have to hear how God put her together. What we need to know is that God took something out of man to connect him to woman. Because Adam had a, a realization when he see the process occurring. He understood that it was his rib. God didn't need his consent. You know, he didn't have to sign a consent for the procedure. God just simply put him to sleep. And took a rib. Because God wanted to make a point. God wanted for Adam to know. That this, this woman. Is a part of you. So you got to watch how you treat her. You got to respect her. Because she is part of you. Flesh of my flesh. And bone of my bone. God wanted to make a point. To Adam. About relationship. 
and how he is now connected to the one that God believes is a suitable companion for him. You see, God, the creator, made an observation in this text about Adam. Adam did a great job naming all the animals. And I'm sure in the process of naming them, he may have felt some intimacy for them, just as I do for the cardinal that lives in the tree in my backyard. That shows up every morning and announces its presence. We can get intimate with animals we can get close to livestock. My first uh, pet was a lamb, a, a lamb, a sheep. Someone gave me a sheep for Christmas, and I didn't think much about her until she produced a great ram. And the ram was an was a, was a elegant figure. He had curly horns, and he stood tall among all the other rams in the village. And I called him Lammy. I was attached to him until they sent me away one summer. And when I came back, I didn't see Lammy. I walked all over the town to try and find Lammy. I asked everyone where was Lammy. And then I opened the freezer and it was chock full of Lammy. And my heart broke. I don't know if that's ever happened to you. I had a cat. His name was Joy. Well, we called him Joy because we thought he was a girl. Until one day my husband was fondling him and playing with him. And he says, I think he's got tumors. And I'm like, where are the tumors? He says, come, come, come. You feel the tumors. And I'm like, that's, you know, what it is. It's just, that's his testicle. He's not a, he, he is actually, she is actually a he. But it was a natural process, if you know what I mean. Anyway, we got so attached to our cat. He had kidney issues. And one day, the vet says to me, you spent enough money on this cat. You need to do something about this cat. I could take your money if you keep bringing him in. You know, $1,000 here and $1,000 here. But Mrs. James, I'm telling you, you may be better off just putting Joy down. <laughs> I remember the morning we walked into the veterinarian hospital. And the secretary gave me some papers. She says, you got to sign these papers. These are euthanasia paper to say that you agree to killing your cat. She didn't say it that way. I'm just dramatic. <laughs> I sat with the paper in my lap crying and Anthony beside me weeping. He was a high schooler in grade 12. Some cultures would say, man, man up, man, and... What are you crying for? But we were emotionally attached to the cat. He wept, I wept. By the time I gave the woman the paper, the paper was all wet with tears. As far as I know, they put him down, but they never stopped looking for him in the neighborhood, hoping that they just let him loose <laughs> instead of killing him. I remember seasons in my life when we walk, I come home from work, and I walk up to the door, really expecting to see Joy at the door, my cat. And disappointed that he wasn't there anymore. We can grow attached to animals. We can grow attached to things. But God in his word said, I need someone suitable, something suitable for Adam because he don't look good. 
He's got all these things around him, but he don't look good. He's got everything I've created just for him, but something is missing. He needs a human connection. He needs that connection, not just with me, but with his own kind. And so God says, I'm going to take a detour from my regular method of creation, of shaping her from the ground, but just taking a part of him so he can feel connected to her. Human connection is formed when we give ourselves to another in the flesh. When he declared at last, this one is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, he's saying, she comes from me. She is a part of me, but she looks different from me. God intended a special bond between the first two humans he created. After all, it's not as if God could not have done the job without Adam. He could. But God required Adam to be participant in this relationship. Man was first according to the text. But God had come constructed a different yet compatible human form as a relational partner for man. And Adam's response to Eve was really twofold in the scripture. He names her woman because he said she came out of man. And then he called her Eve because she would be the mother of all human life forms. Adam could have said a lot of other things about Eve. <laughs> That's not recorded in the Bible. Such as, how come that fig leaf fit you better than me? <laughs> how come your, foot, your feet are smaller than mine? How come you walk differently than I? How come you've got curves that I don't have? How come you talk differently? What are you? You are so intriguing. Because you're certainly not like me. God could have given him another man that looked just like him. But what, where would the interest be? Where, what would stimulate Adam's interest for further understanding of this, this creature that God had created for him. In fact, the scripture implies this. When he says this, this connection is so deeply felt that Adam would be the first of a mankind who would see woman as intriguing, stimulating, exciting, and suitable, in fact, <laughs> the scripture says, and because of this, a man will leave his father and his mother, his first connections in life, and he will cleave 
to his wife. His wife. The man-woman connection was so powerful that the writer of Proverbs, which we believe could have been a womanizer, we're not sure, he says in 30 and 18, there are three things that amaze me. No, no, four things that I don't understand. He says, the eagle glides through the sky. Have you ever watched them? How a snake slithers on a rock. And how a ship navigates the ocean. And then he says, this is amazing and mysterious. How a man loves a woman. I found it interesting that he tagged on verse 20, which doesn't seem like it belongs. <laughs> it says, an adulterous woman consumes a man. Woo, power. And then she wipes her mouth and says, what's wrong with that? What the scripture is saying to us, that even though God had good intention for creating women and men in relationship, the power of a woman over a man can even take adulterous forms. My, one of my sons used to say that men are stupid. I'm not here to cut down men. But it's not because men are stupid. Men literally fall prey to the power of women. Not intentional for God to destroy man, but it's just the chemistry. The chemistry. The chemistry that exists between man and woman is, is deeper than we can even imagine. Take adolescence, for example. They can't help it. We just got to guide them. Because God created them with some hormones that are powerful, intentional to create man and woman connection from the moment a girl and a boy reaches puberty. Hormones begin to dictate. We look at them and we think, oh, she's so, mm, or he's so, mm. They can't help it. You got to watch some of the science behind this girl meet boys thing. It's a powerful stuff. Now, some of us in church, you know, we kind of pretend that it doesn't exist. We kind of pretend that we're made of stone. And we tell each other lies about what's really going on in our chemistry, <laughs> right? It knows no boundaries. That is why we need the Holy Spirit because our flesh is vulnerable. God made us that way. It's a grand design, problematic as it may be. But God wired us this way with these neurons and these chemicals and these hormones in our bodies. Because you know what? We came out of Adam's rib. <laughs> there was a lot going on in that rib. 
<laughs> it was just a template for the chromosomes and the DNA and all the stuff that are wired into us. It's a mystery. And today we understand a lot more about this mystery because we have science. And we have understanding about how our desires and our hormones function. But it's not just for sexual things and relationship. It's for connectivity with humankind. Each other. One of the great psychiatrists that I've been following lately that wrote a book, The Anatomy of the Soul. And I, I shouldn't, I should quote his name. Just to be just, just to be careful, Kurt, uh, just give me a second. So his name is, is Kurt. Got to go back to the book itself. Kurt Thomas, Thompson, sorry, MD. Kurt Thompson, MD. He is a medical doctor. He's a psychiatrist. And he says that we are born from birth to connect with another human being. And if we don't have a healthy connection, with the first people in our life, i.e. our mother and our father, and any other adult that is responsible for caring for us at birth, we will develop various types of attachment issues. Our attachments to other human beings come from the early years of our lives, how we were attached to our mother, how we were attached to our father. Everything else from there is determined by those early attachment days. What is so significant about that is that we all crave attachment from the moment we're born. And it makes sense because in a healthy pregnancy. We're all attached to our mother for nine months. When we emerge from the womb, the first thing we do is grasp for our mother. Look for our mother. Because we come into the world totally disoriented. We came from a place of attachment to detachment. And that reattachment must occur. And if that reattachment does not occur in a healthy way, we're going to have issues with attachments for the rest of our lives. Do you see why there's so much divorce? Because people become attached and detached. Because we do not know how to healthily attach and engage each other. You know what that does for me? It helps me to be patient with my husband. It helped me to be patient with my kids. Understanding the fact that we all have unhealthy attachment disorders. We all do. 
even the ones of us who came into the world and we may have been an only child and our parents had nothing else to do but to dote on us. We can still find ourselves having attachment issues. Because perhaps maybe our parent may be overprotective of us because we're that one child and may breathe ambivalence into us and trust issues so we can't trust others. And though we may be closely aligned to our parents, we can't trust anyone outside of our parents' purview. And as great as parents they are, they may have done a number on you. Then there's some of us who our parents had so many kids, they didn't even have time to attach with every, any single one of them. Because they were so busy chasing after each one. And then there are times in our lives when we have trauma. We may have had a, a healthy beginning and a great course. But trauma comes into our life. And we see this into the first family. Adam and Eve's family. One could say, well, you know, they had everything going for them. God made them uh, the first people. Everything was going great. And how is it that Cain went out and killed his brother Abel? That don't make sense. This should be the perfect family, you would say. But what does this tell us? This tells us that there are attachment issues that even these first siblings that were on the planet had because of envy. There was something lacking in Cain's life. And what else tells us as well is that even if we have a perfect family and we're not attached to God, and he's not number one in our lives, it can flow into attachment issues with our relationships. And so we have a mystery that God wanted human beings, his creations, to have capacity to multiply and fill the earth, but not just for the sake of filling the earth, but to be on mission for God, a oneness with him. And understanding that they, they are indelibly connected to God and to each other and to all of God's creation. And so I want to make the point that we are all connected. First of all, in our origins. I know some of you are studying about the origins of man and you're going to get philosophers telling you all kinds of reasons why we exist. But our origins is not an evolutionary process. We originated from the mind and the heart and the hand of God. And we are shaped and formed from the dust of the earth. From the dust of the earth, God created man. And man became a living soul. And we, apart from Adam and Eve, all came through them. And each of us were born of a woman. That is why Adam says, I call her Eve because from her, all life forms will come. And you know, this is a great point I want to make right here. 
there is something special about the womb. It's a, it's a sacred place. A sanctified place. Because it's out of the womb that God knits every other person apart from Adam and Eve. Tragedy when a man would kick a woman carrying his child in their stomach. What does that tell us about humankind? We are really messed up. We are so messed up that we have lost respect for those who carried us. Men and women are carried by a woman. And, 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 and boys and men, we ought to look up to our mothers. We should have reverence for our mothers. Because they carried us nine months in their wombs. In that sacred hollow place of God's design. And when they carried us. They had to go through agony and pain just to bring us into this world. And here's the other thing. Not only is the womb a sacred place where life begins, the whole earth is a womb for all of us. And we ought to honor and respect this earth. And when we hear People saying they don't believe in climate change. And they don't believe in this and they don't believe in that. They're disrespecting and honoring this place, this womb of humanity and all life forms. And so we got to be careful as Christians. The things we do, the things we say, because it affects our connectivity with God and with each other. We're not only originate from God, but genetically, we're wired from our mother and our father. We're wired physically. We carry their genes. We carry their DNA. We carry the things that make up their brain and their neurons. And that is why in psychiatry, there is so much understanding about how our lives progress according to how we're treated as infants, a lot matters about what happens to us when we come out of the womb. Because a newborn baby is beginning to form its rewiring of its brain. And every emotion its mother carry, every emotion its father carry, is going to shape what that child will become and how that child will be attached to humanity. It's a serious job being a new parent. Because you're shaping a child to be what you are. Vicariously, your child will become you. And here's the thing. Some of us, we don't want to admit that our parents had problems. And that our parents have passed down those problems to us. But here's the thing. If we don't arrest ourselves and assess where we've come from, we're likely to continue to perpetuate the problems to one generation after another. So today's message really 
It's just a template to, for us to understand that we are all God's children, but we live in a messed up world. Adam and Eve may have had the same physical structures, but they were very different in terms of their reproductive organs and hormones and all of that. And in that, they had to learn to understand each other, but their challenge would be even greater as their different personalities begin to evolve. It's good when other people observe your marriage. My sister was at my home for a couple of weeks. She had a lot of fun just watching. There was one example. We were driving somewhere, and <laughs> my, I said to my husband, I think we should call them and let them know we're on our way. He says, oh, you don't have to call them. And in the moment he said, you don't have to call them, I was already dialing. And my sister was just dying. And she's like, I'm just amazed at the two of you. He says one thing, and you does another. Now, some people may think that that's disrespectful. But at the end of the day, we're wired differently. He may not see the necessity to call ahead, but I felt in my heart that I should give that person time to organize themselves and be ready at the door and be ready to receive us. Am I right? Is he wrong? It's not a question of that. But here's the thing. We got to respect the fact that we're wired differently. So we don't fight over our, our moments when we just go our own way. Because God has wired us differently. I can't tell you the countless of times we have said to each other, I'm so glad you made that decision. I am so glad you did that. Because you see, here's the problem. When we don't have healthy attachments, we lack confidence in our decision-making process. And before you know it, you're married to someone that God didn't intend you to be like. <laughs> God didn't intend me to be like my husband or my husband to become me. But here's what happens in relationship when we have unhealthy attachment issues. We don't know how to stand on our own two feet. And nobody's doing anything. Because each has become each other. And you see that in a lot of relationships, especially as they age. Some people think it's complimentary when your husband can finish your sentence. And maybe that is true. But I like to just change the sentence. Not to give him a hard time. But to, to stand on my individuality. Because God brings two individuals together to do great things. And if we're thinking like sheep and we're going ahead and nobody's thinking differently, you're going to have a boring relationship, number one. And it may not even last because you're just two alike and you're not saying anything. And you're just following the other. Do you get my drift? 
I kept saying to my sis, I said, men are from Mars and women are from Venus. But creation tells us that we're not the same. We're compatible, but we're not the same. And compatibility has nothing to do with sameness. What it has to do is difference in agreement. Because if you've got a lot of differences, you've got chaos. Right? But it's when you can be different and yet you're committed. When you can be different and you're getting along. When you can be different and have different views, but you can come to an agreement. We call that in marriage couples agreement. And couples agreement is necessary for a healthy relationship. For children and parents to get along, you need to have agreement as children and parents. But our children are not clones of us. You know, my, my sons cannot be me. For one thing, I'm a woman and they're boys. And I can't be them because for one thing, they're boys and I think like a woman. Or however women think. Because we're all over the place. But we're wired that way. Amen? And the important thing is for us to understand how we're made fundamentally from the creator God. But also how culture, society, sociology impacts the formation of who we become. And how that fits into our connectivity with our brothers and sisters and our fellow men. That is very important. And sometimes we've got to go back and look at our beginning and, and ask ourselves some real tough questions and maybe even interview the people who raised us and ask them, did you drop me when I was born? <laughs> there may be some secrets, some family secrets around your birth that you're not aware of, but it's shaping the man or the woman that you've become. And that is why David in 139, he says... Gives us a good description about how the only person who really knows us is our creator God. Do you know your parents don't even know you? Sometimes they don't even have a time to get to know you. You know, from the moment you're born, they're just happy you can talk. They're just happy you can walk. They're just happy that you're taking the food. They're just happy that you can learn in school. They're just happy that you got a good education. And anything beyond that is a bonus for some parents. Because we're just so busy and so caught up in life. And that is why we need to know that the most important thing in life is to be known by God. Because nobody really loves me like you love me, Jesus. Nobody loves me like you love me, Jesus. I stand in awe of your amazing grace. I worship you as long as I am breathing. God, you are faithful and true. Nobody loves me like you. Nobody knows you like Jesus. Your mother don't know you. Your father don't know you. Your husband don't know you. Your best friend may say they know you, but they really don't know you. And you know what I've discovered through this pandemic? A lot of people don't even know me. Because sometimes you don't even know yourself. You're struggling you're having 
you know, major breakdown and crisis and you're wondering, God, what's going on with me? That's why we got to hold on to him. I love my husband to death, but he don't really fully know me. He cannot know me. Sometimes I'm, I'm passing him and I'm like, and he's like, and I'm like, what, what, what is going on right now? What's going on right now? Don't this man know? You know, and, 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 and we go through these cycles. And you know what? I thank God for those moments because those moments are what remind me. And I, and I said to somebody, you know, you could be in a marriage and be lonely. Because there are moments in your marriage where you may have needs that your husband is still on Mars. Right? And Venus has arrived. But your husband is still, is still vacationing on Mars. I, I can use my own marriage. Because I don't want nobody to say I'm talking about their marriage. Right? <laughs> but we get those moments where we're like... Where do I go, east or west? That's why we need that voice behind us saying, this is the way, walk in it. Because there's no real conversions of happiness on life that we can just grasp and hold on to all the days of our lives. But I love those moments when my husband don't misinterpret my moments of attachment needs. <laughs> because you know what that does? It drives me to the Father. It reminds me that nobody can love me like he loves me. And nobody can truly know me like he does. David says, oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and you know when I rise up. And you discern my thoughts <laughs> from afar. You know, you don't even have to go up to Jesus and do that. He already knows where you're at. He says, you search out my path and my lying down and you're acquainted with all of my ways. You know, sometimes we can hide our ways from other people, but God knows our ways. He says, even my thoughts, you can see them from afar. You search out my path and my lying down, and you're acquainted with all my ways. He says, you know, even before a word is on my tongue. You know, people in your life may not even know what you're going to say next. You could, you could be raised with a twin sister or a twin brother. And sometimes they're so closely connected. But even they... We'll have trouble knowing your thoughts from afar. He says, you know, because I belong to you, God. You are the one who hold me together. You hem me in, behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful to me. Do you want to be known by men or do you want to be known by God? He says, it is high. I cannot attain it. Where should I go from your spirit? Or where should I flee from your presence? He says, if I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Shoal, 
you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the utmost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me. Oh, that we grasp that. It doesn't matter where we began or how many people traumatized us. If we know this, we're secure. He says, your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely darkness cover me and the light about me is night, even in the darkness, it's not too dark for you. The night is as bright as day. For darkness is a light to you. God can see through the deep, darkest places of our world and of our life and of our situation. Our depression and our dark days, God sees. Aren't you glad he does? When you're misunderstood because you're just struggling and you're just really existing for mere life and just holding on by a thread. Aren't you glad that God sees through the darkness? Verse 13 collaborates with the creative story. Verse 13 says, For you formed my inward parts, and you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are great, God. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you. And when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them. Isn't that a reassuring thing? That God not only knows you, he takes notice of you. And even if you're abandoned by those who should love you, God have you recorded as his in his book. What a reassuring text. He says, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them, you had me recorded in your book. This brings us to the whole topic of when does life begins in the womb, doesn't it? This, this writer is saying, even before I was knitted, you knew who I was. Even before my body was formed, the embryo or whatever, you already had a body prepared for me. He says, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast the sum of them. If I could count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I'm still with you, Holy Spirit. Help me, God. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, oh God. You know, David says, people who deny this ability of God to create us and to knit us together, to shape us, to form us, to create us, to connect us genetically, because he wants us here. Because he predestined us to be here. Nobody can love us like this God. He is an amazing God. Psalm 103 says, know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. We belong to God. For those of us who can't go back and change our story. 
for those of us who were abandoned, for those of us who were abused and broken from various places of nurturing in our past, we can't go back and change the story. But we can have a new discernment. That is not just that we know of God and have a knowledge of God and we go to church and we pray and we worship, but we are known by God. We are known by the God of gods, the King of kings. And that should put us on a new path of relationship and authentic living, knowing that we are God's special creation. And so is your brother and sister beside you. The process of being known is the vessel in which our lives are needed and molded, lanced, <laughs> and sutured, confronted, and comforted, bringing God's new creation closer to its fullness in preparation for the return of the king. It is a communal container in which the information about the mind and relationships that we will explore in our life on this planet will take shape. And it's what gives birth to the graces of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and self-control. We long to experience and develop these attributes, and we should, and we must, because we must remember that all of us come from broken places. And if we're going to do life together and be in community and in relationship with each other, we need these gifts of the Holy Spirit. We need these attributes. We call them the fruit of the Spirit in ourselves, in our children, and in our communities. We want these qualities to come naturally as breathing, but they don't. Because you're a believer don't mean that you're not going to get upset and angry with your spouse. Sometimes you want to kill them. Just saying. Let's, let's be real. Sometimes you want to divorce them. And sometimes it's not even for the big things. I swear to you, in the first year of my marriage, my husband was teaching me to drive. It was horrible. We cussed every night. We went out driving. As a matter of fact, it's over 40 years and we still quarrel when he tells me, don't drive here, don't drive there. And I'm like, when I'm on my own, I don't have nobody talking in my head. I swear to you, the first year of the marriage, I was ready for a divorce. I was like, God, get me out of here. And it wasn't the big things. It was the little things. Do you understand what I'm trying to say? Because we are Christ followers and because we believe in Jesus and that he's the way to our becoming filled with these things and that developing them means, uh, is a means of collaborating with him and to usher in the kingdom of God. As we work toward justice, as we work towards peace, 
as we treat our parents and our children with grace and dignity, as we ideally love friends as well as enemies, whether they are our employees or neighbors or our spouses, we often look at these attributes and we feel they're unattainable. How many of you can say, man, I'm the most patient person in this room? <laughs> Come on. The most peaceful. The most joyful. Some mornings I got to literally pull joy out of, the, out of YouTube. <laughs> Have you had to do that? You wake up and it's something. And you got to just go downstairs or put on your headphone quick and go on YouTube. And at first, you don't really want to sing, right? So you turn the music louder to distract you from your mad thoughts, right? And then you start to sing so loud that you begin to drown out all the things that are bothering you. So nobody can talk to you or enter into your space. Have you ever had to do that? Come Holy Spirit, bring truth in this place. Sometimes the people closest to us can feel like our enemies. Because the people that are closest to you have the capacity to rub you the wrong way. And you go to work, and you walk in the door, and you forget how mad you are driving to work. And they go, oh, how are you doing today, Mars? Oh, I'm great. <laughs> and that's good because you have the capacity to shift your mindset and keep what belongs at home at home. And then you go home, and your husband greets you at the door. How was your day, honey? Now talk to me, boy. <laughs> Do you see how we work? We are not as gracious to the people we live with, but we are good at putting on an act with strangers. How many of you grew up seeing your parents being generous and kind to everybody but you? Or have an attachment to why they should favor you? Like your grades. Like you clean the house. Like you do your chores. And if you don't do those things, don't expect me to like you. What about unconditional love? it's least likely to happen in the closest relationships that we have. And these are what causes all these messed up attachments that we have. I don't want to keep you here all day, even though I have a day's worth of things to say. We sometimes have to exhale. As we're going through this journey, there are times where it's not easy to inhale and exhale. 
That is why so many of us have anxiety issues. And that is why we need to explore the things that are suffocating us. Because a lot of us are walking around breathless because of the problem of doing life. I'm going to read one example from Dr. Thompson's book that really hits this home to me about how fragile we are in our relationships. He is a psychiatrist. And so he interviews a lot of people. And he tells us about this guy, and I'm going to read it directly from him because I want you to get the essence of it. His name is Roger. And Roger's story, let me just find that. This is my page. Roger is a lot like many of us that pushes things in our past and in our lives aside. And then we have issues functioning. Here's what he says about Roger. He says, Roger's educational pedigree was impeccable. After completing his undergrad studies and medical degree at a prestigious Ivy League institution, he trained at the top of the pediatric surgical residency programs in the country. By the time he was in his mid-30s, he was beginning two careers in earnest. He had accepted his first position at a teaching hospital, and he became a father. So he's doing career, and he's doing fatherhood. Lucky him, you would say. He had accepted his first position at a teaching hospital, and he became a father. In one job, he quickly ascended a rising star. In the other, he was flaming out. In the other, he was dying. His wife, Joy, had come to see me when their first child, Gabriel, was about two and a half. She told me she no longer knew what to do in response to Robert Rogers' incessant impatience and harshness with the toddler. I don't understand it. He's one of the most respected young pediatric surgeons in the region. And he doesn't seem to know what to do with his own child. She fretted. I want to have more children. And so does Roger. But sometimes I feel like I already have two. Only one of them is almost 40 years old. I'm really worried about having another baby. Seeing how he is with Gabriel. Maybe it's just the stress of his work. He's really busy. I suggested that he consider coming to see me, which he did willingly. Roger was warm, friendly, and soft-spoken. He admitted that he wanted to be a better father. He was completely flummoxed as to why he reacted to Gabriel as he did. Here's Roger. 
about Gabriel, two years old. He drives me nuts, Roger said. He just seems so obstinate at times. I simply don't know why I get so angry with him. This level of exasperation had begun when Gabriel was about two years old. In our first meetings, I explored the usual issues around the general state of Roger's emotional health. He denied any history of anxiety, depression, or substance abuse. He was committed to his wife and son and had a good relationship with his parents. He loved his work, even in the face of mountainous time demands. He and Joy had become involved in a local church fellowship where he found the preaching to be intellectually stimulating. When I asked him if he had had any major traumas or losses in his life, he flatly though thoughtfully said no. Next, I asked him, what about li what life was like when he was a young boy? He told me he couldn't remember anything with clarity before he, his seventh grade or eighth grade year in school. In addition, he, he acknowledged that his family never talked about emotion or feelings. His father was quiet and his mother was anxious. But apart from their emphasis on their children doing well in school and well-mannered citizens they were, they tended to stay out of their children's lives. He remembered spending much time in his middle and high school years, either in his room, reading or working at the local grocery store. He had friends in high school and college, but most of his energy was consumed in academics. Given that he used paucity in his words to describe his emotions, and that he recalled so little of his younger years, I invited him to participate in a simple exercise called body scan. This is a relaxation exercise we use, a technique commonly referred to as guided visual imagery. The patient positions himself in a comfortable posture, closes his eyes, and then systematically, at my direction, focuses his attention on different parts of his body, beginning with his feet, and then proceeding through the lower limbs, ascending throughout his body, and eventually shift to his abdomen, back, neck, head, and face, respectively culminating with focusing on breathing. The task enables the participant to enhance his awareness of his bodily sensations and enlarge his awareness of how his emotional states are translated through them and provides a way for him to release the stress and tension he feels in each area of his body. It also has the capacity to evoke implicit memories as a person attends to parts of his body that have encoded and retrieved those memories. Surprisingly, when Roger reached the point in the exercise in which he was focusing on his abdomen, he suddenly uttered a low groan, furrowing his eyebrows, be still and know. Sometimes we just need to be still. 
I asked him what he was experiencing and he was able to stammer. I, I see something. I'm remembering something I haven't thought about in years. He went on to describe at first a vague shadowy awareness that he was seeing in his mind. He recalled a time when he was about eight or nine. He was standing in his driveway at his family's home in New Jersey, glancing at the point where the driveway opened to a busy highway. His mother and brother, who was two years old, stood there. Suddenly, his brother bolted into the street before his mother could stop him and was hit by an oncoming car. He succumbed to head injuries a few days later. By this time, as Roger's sharp memory was rendering through the formerly impenetrable curtain of his mind. Tears were streaming from his eyes. And he looked at me helplessly, incredulous that this was his story, the one for which he had no explicit memory when I had inquired earlier about any losses or trauma. Over the next several sessions, he gradually recalled how his life had unfolded in the wake of this tragedy. No one ever processed his brother's death with him. His parents themselves suffocated in grief at the loss of their toddler. They could not offer Roger little comfort for what he had witnessed and what he had lost. They never spoke with each other, let alone him, about his brother. The house became quiet and sad. He began to recall a time when he had developed stomach problems. His parents took him to see a doctor, but as far as he could remember, his abdominal complaints went away on their own. He never spoke about the accident to anyone, not even his wife. In retrospect, he was aware of the fact that he had a brother who had died as a result of a car accident, but he had not recalled witnessing it until he underwent the body scan. When he did, the memory was activated when he focused on his abdomen, the part of the body where his emotional distress had taken up residence after his brother's death. And since Rogers' ambivalence toward Gabriel, his two-year-old son, began when he turned two, the age at which his brother had died, it's likely that Rogers' implicit memory of his brother at age two was being evoked by the presence of his own son. Since Roger's parents never helped him to process his feelings in ways that gave him language with which to express his emotions, 
Roger learned to rely on alternative means of navigating the trenches of re the relational world that depended on his mind's left-mode strengths. His accomplishments, his accomplishments, sorry, his accomplishments, hold on. His accomplishments as an outstanding academician and as a pediatric surgeon played on his strengths until he was undone by a two-year-old who reflected back to Roger the echoes of old painful, unavoidable, implicit memories of loss and grief. Emotion. Researchers have learned facilitates the processing of memory. A person like Roger with a lack of emotional processing often is unable to easily recall memories of events that preceded his middle school years. By neglecting to pay attention to emotion, however, people run the risks of leaving behind important parts of their lives that may return to haunt them, as in the case of Roger. Part of the problem with us as humankind is that we don't process the traumas and the abandonments and the issues of our past, and some of us grow up to be angry adults, having disconnection, with the people that are closest to us. We're all traumatized by something, some form or another. Some of us just choose, well, not choose, but the brain works that way, protect us from remembering. But what if we get into a relationship with God? We're, and you may say, but these therapy things are just medicine, but you know what? This writer and author is a godly man, Christian man that practices psychiatry. Psychiatry is a very necessary tool for us today, especially in this generation. There are so many of our children and grandchildren who are experiencing depression today. And you see, if we don't fix these issues, it's going to affect another generation, another generation, and another generation. And the problem is that we all have baggage. We bring our baggage into our relationships. And so we've got to get to the place, church, where we understand that God has designed us to be in relationships with each other. Had Adam and Eve gotten a hold of Cain and what Cain was going through, he wouldn't have killed Abel. We see what is happening on our streets. Our young people are having relational issues. Some of them come to this country, they feel abandoned by their parents. Some are going through stresses that they're not even responsible for. But they're generational stressors that they're carrying. When we bring a newborn baby into the world, we've got to know that we've got life 
in our hands that we are molding. And we got to watch our behavior. We've got to watch our attitude. We've got to watch our anxieties. We've got to check ourselves that we're not passing on these same issues to another generation. Because God has designed us to be in relationship with each other. We cannot, we cannot survive on this planet without being in community. We're created this way. But we're killing each other. Because we have unhealthy attachments to one another. Putin has attachment issues. Donald Trump has serious attachment issues. Perhaps Biden does too. Maybe Trudeau does. I heard Liz Cheney say something that was rather inspiring. The other day she was giving a speech. And she says... To the young women in the audience. Men. Mostly white men. She didn't say that. I'm adding that in. Are running the world. And they're messing it up. That is why. We got to find out who we are. And who we represent. And who know us best. And even if the narrative didn't begin right. In your life journey and story. With God's help. You can change the narrative. It's important that you change the narrative of who you are. Because another generation is depending on you to stop the buck. Let the buck stop with you. You may not have grown up under the best circumstances. But you can guarantee the next generation. And tell your children the truth. Tell them you were raped. Tell them you were abused. Tell them you had abortions. Tell them that you were abused by your husband. Tell them the story. Because by telling them the story, you can stop their story. Because you know what? They're you. They are you. And everything that you encounter has impacted them. Those moments when you were down and sad and depressed, you're putting it into the wiring of your child. And the next generation. But we can make a change. We can make a difference. Those gifts of the Holy Spirit. Are ours. You can come praise team. Those gifts of the Holy Spirit. Are ours. Look at your family line. Those cut offs. Those cut offs. Those, those things that we've modeled and replicated from generation after generation. When we shun others, when we, when we, when we do bad by strangers, when we, 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 we allow our brain to register physical pain that is activated in our relationships. Our young people are craving a sense of belonging and, and functioning. And we have the choice to give that to them. By asking God to change our lives. By surrendering some of those hard places in our lives to God. And say, God, I want to do better. I want to be better. You say, but maybe I messed up with my children. But maybe you're a grand grandmother now or a grandfather or an aunt or an uncle or a sister or a brother. You can make a difference. Rewrite the story. 
Give good energy to people around you. Support young parents who may be going through difficulties. Bring some good energy to them so they can pass that good energy on to the next generation. We've got work to do, church. We got to surrender what we are and who we are so that we can forge a better work ahead in the generation to come. I hope today that this message speaks to you in helping to support the people that you are in your relationships and be patient with each other. We're all coming from broken places.